Welcome to Cinema Duel, a podcast where myself, John, and my friend Chris talk around a couple of movies on a theme of our choosing. Chris, how are you hanging in there, buddy? I am hot as hell, John. It is uh, it is evening. My air conditioner in this room is way too loud for recording, so uh, uh, I've, I've turned it off <laughs> so that we can have a good conversation. Please note that by the end of this, I will probably have melted. <laughs> how are you doing? Well, I, uh, I'm... Uh... I'm trying to come down after the kid bedtime, so, you know, uh, not AC-related, but uh, also feeling uh, just a little bit uh, parented out right now. So You're a little hot under the collar for very different reasons. Yeah. Uh, turns out kids don't like bedtime. Who knew? <laughs> so, uh, our theme for today is a bit of an audible uh this doesn't need to be a big and important thing. Uh, I don't want to make it sound more grandiose than it is, but it occurred to me that uh, in the wake of the ongoing stuff that we talked about last episode with, uh, in the intro with uh, Black Lives Matter and talking about how we can be more thoughtful around how we run this podcast, I thought that uh, we haven't really talked to any black filmmakers yet. And uh, so I thought we would start with probably one of the most obvious choices for that, which is Spike Lee. Um, and I say obvious, because, um, but I think that I'm okay with it being an obvious choice uh, under the condition that, like, this doesn't end up being the only black filmmaker that we do. That, uh, you know, as this progresses over time, that we come back to uh, uh, to check out other filmmakers as well and, uh, you know, all that good stuff. Yeah, and let's be honest, there was, even though we're recording this now very late, uh, there was some serendipity involved because when we decided to make the decision, one of the films we were going to talk about um, just was released by Spike Lee. So, you know, no surprises, we are going to talk about The Five Bloods. Uh, so it just kind of made sense if we wanted to start really focusing on different voices um, and, and not talk about what we were originally going to talk about, which was uh, French kind of um, post-New Wave cinema, uh, which it would be a little bit drier, I <laughs> I would think. Um, why not talk with kind of one of the biggest names um, in black filmmaking, uh, who incidentally just had a brand new film out? So uh, we we will be definitely, to John's point, doing a lot more um, varied and different voices moving down the line. But figure if you're going to start, start big, and let's start with one of the best well known names out there. And before we launch into The uh, Five Bloods, I thought I'd just, like, just for a quick context, because we often talk about our history with a particular uh, filmmaker or genre that we're covering. Yeah. I mean, there's not any particular reason for Spike Lee being a blind spot of mine, but I think prior to this I had seen uh, his Old Boy remake and Black Klansman, and that was about it. Um, now in the last few weeks when we've been prepping for this uh I've watched, I mean, he, he he's a fairly prolific filmmaker, uh, so wasn't able to get everything, but uh, I was able to get a bunch of his earlier stuff, and then a lot of, of his more recent, like, uh, Amazon and Netflix-based uh, stuff as well. Um, I think I've, and it's, it's, it's been fun and always interesting. Chris, like, has Spike Lee been a filmmaker that you've tracked with? Um, in any capacity, but before this, 
Yeah, um, probably not to the extent that I should. And one of the great things about taking this on was, yeah, I did get to go and hit on a bunch of the more, particularly the more recent films that I hadn't been keeping up with um, and find some really interesting things there. But yeah, I mean, I, I grew up in the 80s and the era of she's going to have it and uh, school days and do the right thing, um, which we're not going to really talk about too much today. That's not one of the films that we picked because that was – if we're talking about obvious, you, it's almost too obvious to talk about do the right thing and, and just how incredible that film is. But that was a huge um, – that film in particular, I think f- like for many people, was um, – an igniting point for me with film and and what film could do and 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 we'll talk about how some of those things track in in, in this film and in the other film we're going to talk about um but there's always more to to your point he's so prolific there were so many things that um despite saying hey i've seen you know i can it's more than fingers on one hand that i've seen there's so much that he's done um really in the last 15 years that i didn't really get to keep track of so diving into that was a blast um always room for more though First movie for the night is the most recent Spike Lee joint, uh, 2020's *The Five Bloods*. It, this is a it's a it's a movie that is both set in and reflective on uh, the Vietnam War from the perspective of uh, a unit of black soldiers. Let me pull up the cast real quick. Here we've got uh, Delroy Lindo, Jonathan Majors, Clark Peters, Norm Lewis, Isaiah Whitlock Jr. Uh, and Chadwick Boseman. We'll talk about what this movie is and all of the things that the, this movie is, because if there's a grand overarching theme to this movie is that it is a lot. Um, but essentially the idea is that uh, this group of five Vietnam vets, uh, decades removed from their time in the, in the service, uh, go back to Vietnam to find some gold that they had buried, uh, along with trying to ref, uh, find the remains of uh, their fallen leader, Chadwick Boseman, uh, who was uh, killed in Vietnam, and see if they can try and find his remains and bring them back. So this is a heist movie. Um, I've seen a lot of commentary about how has it taken you know, 50 plus years before we finally got a quote unquote black Vietnam movie. And in that, in that question, it seems like maybe Spike Lee maybe wanted to make, you know, five movies just to compensate for it. And so (laughs) I watched this movie twice first when it first came out. And my experience was completely one of being overwhelmed by sort of like all of the narrative threads that get brought in and all of the things that you're tracking. And then I watched it a second time after I had gone back and watched all of the Spike Lee movies and having a better sense of what seems to be his interests as a filmmaker. Um, and that was fun before, before we get into like the nitty gritty, like what immediately stands out with this for you? So the most immediate thing that stands out for me is something that I want to talk about a lot with relation to all of his films, and that is his his complete, unambiguous love for movies. I mean, this is a guy who has absorbed 
so much filmmaking, so much movie making um, that he, he can't help but be exuberant in anything that he does. Um, it's, it's interesting because I find uh, I also watched The Five Bloods twice. I watched it when it first came out and, and watched it about a week ago, um, just kind of trying to refresh myself for it. And it's very large and ambitious with a lot of his style. One of the things that's amazing about Spike Lee is how he is never... I don't want to say that he's he's not subtle because he does have really beautiful, subtle moments, but he's so exuberant in his filmmaking and in his style. Everything is 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 is, is heightened. Um, but I... Coming around the, the second time, although the film is ostensibly... It's, it, it is exactly what you said. It's, it's a bit of a heist movie. It's about these Vietnam vets who are going back to Vietnam after so many years to find their fallen con but also to get gold that they had buried. And there's there are some very heisty genre elements in it. Um, I, I, I think with The Five Bloods, the thing that really struck me was how much more Spike Lee was, as much as Spike Lee is telling a message about violence and about um, the visibility of the black experience in the Vietnam War and how that relates to violence, that it was occurring at the time of the Vietnam War and how that violence is being reflected in current times. This is a very current film, and that's something that I've always loved about Spike Lee. Um, all of that stuff is there, but Spike Lee also really, really gets into genre in this film. Um, and he does it in a couple other films. We Maybe we can talk about it afterwards about some of the other films we watched. But he really relishes, especially in the third act of this film, the heavy genre moments. He, he doesn't let you forget, oh, this is also a heist movie and we're going to have shootouts and we're going to have gold and we're going to have all this happen. Um, it just so happens that he couches it in these larger issues, but he takes the genre portions of it very seriously. Um, it's an incredibly entertaining movie. I actually prefer it to Black Klansman. It was fun. I mean, th that was my biggest takeaway. I mean, that this is Spike Lee doing what Spike Lee does and having a lot of fun with it. For all of the things that this movie is, I think it ultimately works on the strength of uh, Lindo's acting. Um, and I had, and I, I mean, I remember, I remember liking him and gone in 60 seconds, but I had, can't say I had followed his career, uh, especially closely and that's been like 20 years ago so um but he his I, th I think everything that spike lee is hoping to do in the movie gets embodied in his performance um from the the contradictory the seemingly contradictory nature of the conflicting viewpoints and all of the different like pro-trump anti-trump uh pro-vietnamese anti-vietnamese all of those all of the different sort of perspectives in the movie sort all sort of seem to like come to a head with him, and uh, yeah. it's and and I think that that is also a very Spike Lee thing as well is that he is very interested in 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 genre and movie, but also in ambiguity. He, I don't think that um, which when you want to talk, I mean, since we're coming at this from the perspective of Spike Lee our first black filmmaker on this show, that's probably good for us to establish that like he, his big thing is that is sort of deconstructing the idea that, you know, black thought, black culture is not a monolith. There is not one black perspective. Um, yeah. 
And that and and that really comes into play with the second film we're going to talk about um, as well. I, I, I think it is important to note that the one thing I, I wanted to just point out, though, I mean, it it's it, it's true to your point. This movie rises and falls with um, Delroy Lindo's performance. He is phenomenal um, in this. And 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 the one thing I wanted to just kind of point out when you were talking about it, um, I I want to talk slightly differently. I, I don't know if 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 you meant it th- this way, but when we talked about the the, the big po- the Delroy Lindo moment, um, when he breaks the fourth wall and has that huge monologue, uh, there is no one. I, I I don't think there's a better filmmaker who is able to use who is able to break the fourth wall and engage the audience like Spike Lee does. I really don't know that there's another person who does it better than he does. But th- there are other kind of you said coming to this after watching like you watched it originally and then came to it after watching a lot more Spike Lee films. I do want to talk about he does have a lot of signature things some of which is to your point that the black experience is not a monolith and 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 how he breaks that apart and shows so many different facets from a purely technical movie making level there are so many little things that he does throughout his films and i thought that this is what you're referring to is at, at first but he does have his patented spike lee shot which is in every movie and it's not in the it's not in the delroy linda scene but the whole kind of where the person is stationary and then there's that dolly shot that kind of moves with that person through the through the air or 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 through the uh through the street i mean there are multiple there are tons of movies where he does that. Um, it happens at the very end of *De Five Bloods*, and it's one of my favorite, one of my other favorite moment uh, moments in the film as, as well. But um, th- there's there's so much that he tries to I- I- express. To your point, I just find that. Uh, at least with the five bloods, this is a guy who's now, which is why when we talk about our, our next film, I wanted to pick a really early film. This is a guy now who has done, done that so much. Every single movie has his breaking down of this monolith that it was kind of refreshing to see him just have his moments where he does this, have these moments where he um, shows purely through these kind of um, beautiful small moments of them partying um, in Vietnam in a dance club, um, appropriately titled Apocalypse Now, which apparently is a real club in Vietnam. Moments where they're just sitting and talking. Moments where um, Paul Delroy Lindo um, really shows his, shows kind of, not only is he a staunch kind of MAGA Trump Trumper, but, you know, he, he demonstrates why and and how he feels that way and and how that sense kind of gets broken down over the course of of the film all of those are signature spikely things he just i just found in in this movie he does it in such an he 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 puts the entertainment on equal footing with the message which he doesn't always do um or at least doesn't always do successfully as he does here and i i really appreciated that about the film yeah, yeah, that that successful part. I'll be curious to know how we uh, talk about that in the next one. Um, <laughs> and it comes to like, yeah, a lot of Spike Lee stuff involves like juggling perspectives and occasionally the success or lack of success of how that works. My initial response to watching this movie on the first time was that um, he he does he does tend to do best when he's. Uh, when he's talking about sort of the black uh, soldiers experience. Um, but then like there, 
it seems like there's like he has some blind spots or like things that he doesn't preference as as much like the 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 Vietnamese perspective um but then even though I still think that's kind of true on second watch I think like there is the scene where there's the flashback scene where they're about to ambush the v, the VC and the VC are just talking and they're talking Vietnamese, so they don't understand what's being said, but they're talking about writing letters from home and just sort of like lovely, sentimental family stuff that they're just while they're out on patrol. And it's a really humanizing moment uh, for the VC, which then they all get mowed down by the, the theoretical heroes of the story. And so I thought that was like, even if they still prioritizing sort of the American experience of the war, I thought that I, I like that was a moment where I was like, oh, I, that's, I don't think I've ever yeah. seen that in a Vietnam movie before. Yeah, well, that's, so, you know, that that's something interesting that we should talk about probably at length at some point. And that's that there's this, sometimes there's this, there's this thing out there from people that a movie should encompass everything. And how dare you not talk about the Viet, you know, the VC experience and how those people were, were treated. It's a dialogue that, so as we record this, it is uh, July 12th. And uh, only a week or so ago, um, Hamilton was released on Disney Plus uh, to much fanfare. Um, and it's interesting to watch a lot of the conversation say, well, how come, how come Hamilton isn't talking about this thing? Or how come Hamilton isn't talking about that? thing. And there's this perception out there sometimes that a movie, if it doesn't encompass every single thing, that it's not doing what it needs to do. Um, and I think with The Five Bloods and like Hamilton, you know, there's only so much you can do. You also have to think about this is this is the thing that I want to focus on. This is the thing that I want to talk about. Um, and at the same time, I'm also making something that I want people to see. I'm also making entertainment. I don't know that it's beholden on Spike Lee to tell the entire story in every single perspective of the Vietnam War. I think that sequence that you're talking about is brilliant, and it's a little bit of his nod of how ambiguous this fighting actually was. And it, the fact that you're humanizing these other people kind of draws this impact in a, you know, even though you're rooting for the five bloods, uh, you can't really also cheer for the things that they're doing because this is a very human and very horrible thing that is happening and, and Spike Lee makes you feel that. Now, is it his is it his job in that particular movie to show every single view side and give it equal weight? Uh, you know, just like people are talking about with Hamilton now, is it, was it uh, Miranda's job to talk more about the slavery issue and to talk more about that? He's acknowledged that, you know, he tried to do what he can and there was actually a third debate that got dropped for, for timing. And, but I think it, it, it really boils down to, you know, you, you can't put those constraints around art. You can talk about it and you can respond to it with maybe your own art or your own pieces that talk about those other viewpoints. But I think in the case of The Five Bloods, I, I think Spike Lee is really shooting for a very particular thing that he wants to embody in this film. And I think he's very successful in it. I think there are other parts where he shows other perspectives to 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 broaden his own point he's trying to make but he has to it's a precarious balance to do something like that without sinking a film and having it just be mired in you know an unfocused viewpoint and an unfocused narrative um so i i, I think that's important to note and i think again here he does just enough to be really successful with it 
Yeah, and I think asking Spike Lee to ever sort of like focus is probably a fool's errand, uh, which might sound like yeah. <laughs> that might sound like an insult, but I think it's just an honest assessment. Like I don't like now having watched at least half of his movies, like that he's not he's he has ideas about what he wants to do, but he doesn't seem to want like he 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 doesn't want to tell like simple stories with uh good and bad guys and e- even when that's sometimes not always successful but that is seems to be uh the biggest threat i think is sort of his interest in ambiguity and sort of like considering more angles than most people would want to without a doubt it, it, it's very much a case of uh, and we'll talk about this a lot with the next film sometimes the reach exceeds the grasp yeah. But you know what? I would rather someone reach for the stars and be that ambitious in what they're trying to do and and not, you know, maybe only get 70 percent there. than maybe someone, you know, reach for 10 percent and they got 20, you know, if on a really good, good day. So we'll we'll talk about that. I, I for one, love you can call it his messiness. You can call it his over exuberance. You, you can call it what you will. Uh, he's a filmmaker that I will that I I relish that aspect of his his filmmaking, even when I can see kind of the tears, which I do in the Five Bloods a little bit. So we I mean we can talk a little bit more about basic plot, but as much as I really enjoyed the film, I will say, even though I was talking highly about it before, when it does get to kind of the third act, it becomes almost a little too generic. It really just becomes then a heist gunfight, you know climax you have jean renault a renowned french actor in there playing the heavy um it and it almost just kind of becomes boilerplate action at that point and so much of what was set up beforehand was so much more engaging and, and interesting um one of the things from a technical perspective we didn't talk about yet, but um, each section of the film is defined by different aspect ratio. And when you talk about his exuberance and, and the way he kind of overreaches, um, the first thing that I thought of when I was watching this was Wes Anderson and the Grand Budapest Hotel, which does something similar, yeah. right? But the difference between the two is that um, it's very subtle with Wes Anderson, right? For every time period, it's just a subtle, boom, you're in a new time frame. When uh, In a new aspect ratio. <laughs> when Spike Lee moves from aspect ratio to aspect ratio, he you know lets you it's know. happening. He's yeah. like, it's huge. It's wipe you know, to huge. And then everything is super saturated. Um, and it's, I love it. I love how kind of in your face it is. I love small technical things. Like you can argue, maybe it was budget. You, you can argue, maybe it was an artistic choice, but I love the fact that, you know, the, the large main scenes are, are, are in widescreen and shot digitally. Uh, the Vietnam era stuff is shot on 16 millimeter and is in, you know, Academy aspect ratio one, one third, 33 and they don't de-age the actor. So you have young Chadwick Boseman and old Delroy Lindo and old Isaiah Whitlock. And uh, and it really works. It really, really works. If you think about how Spike Lee is framing the story as these older gentlemen kind of revisiting the past, of course they're going to be as they are now, you know, as they remember these these moments. And I think it I think it works so beautifully in this film. I agree. I I really like, and because this is a movie that comes out on Netflix and uh, a recent movie that 
had similar time problems to solve for was the Irishman, where they did notably use the de-aging thing. And so this almost feel like, I have no idea if this was done as a response to Irishman, but the, um, but the way that they don't de-age the actors seems to, uh, the, the, the surviving bloods, um, when they're doing their fight scene, their flashback stuff that almost like, I think not only does it, you do not really notice, but like it also, I think works on a thematic level because those things are often memories that they're reliving. And so it works on a symbolism level too, where these, these old soldiers are basically reliving their horrific experiences in Vietnam with uh, Chadwick Boseman, the young soldier who never got old because he died. Um, And so their memory of him is always stuck at that, you know, late 20s early 30s or however old he is supposed to be at that point yeah the the aspect ratio stuff was a lot of fun and of course they they really nailed down the details of like how many of those you know those sons like every time they almost every time they go back to the flashback stuff it always starts with like a big uh the big burning sun which you've seen in so many vietnam movies (laughs) or they 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 play that uh is it flight of the Valkyries when they set out on the boat just for a casual leisure cruise like that? I was like, okay, that's I, (laughs) it's an obvious joke, but I had a chuckle on the same. Well, it's funny that, yeah, I mean, so similar to speaking of the, I, the Irishman, um, there are, and, and Wes Anderson, for my money, there are few filmmakers who are so good with music, right? Scorsese is definitely one of them. Uh, Scorsese is a master of how, how to use music, and, and especially already pre-recorded music. Um, I, I, th- I think Spike Lee is another one. And yeah, I mean, from the bar scene at um, Call the Apocalypse Now to using Ride of the Valkyrie for a simple boat ride. He's he's winking at the same time that he's making like a statement, and it's 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 great. I mean, again, this is. I think if you take nothing else from this, it's it's just it's it's fun, it's entertaining, it's really good. Um, he doesn't kill you with his messaging, although if you want that, it's so there. I, I mean, he has a habit of, and it, uh, again, no one I think does fourth wall breaking like Spike Lee does to open the movie with. Um, with all these real life pieces of uh, Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, and then the uh, shootings at, at at Kent State, just kind of showing this cycle of violence, um, you know, moving forwards in time, and then this own story that kind of um, is born of violence and ends in in very large violence. Uh, you know, I I don't know many other movies that takes us. To such delicious joy in blowing people up with landmines that this movie does Fuck. Uh, <laughs> that 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 whole scene like like the when the blood who got uh, who sort of lost all his money he got broke when he started backing up uh and the way the camera moves i was like okay this is yeah, eddie yeah eddie he admittedly i saw it come like that would like they were definitely setting him up for that to happen but it's still sort of like you know grab grab the arm rest of your chair and like you know squeeze for all life that that thing was that was rough but but then when uh but then when david yeah when david steps on the landmine and and way that paul just sort of organizes everyone 
to sort of pull together this rescue effort. That is one of the most hair-raising scenes I've seen in a movie in a long time. Yeah, it's it's fantastic. Which, of course, is immediately undercut because he then pulls a gun on the people who saved his son and like, all right, I'm, I'm back and crazy and in charge again. <laughs> but, yeah. But that's Spike Lee for you. And that points to another kind of, if, if I have to quibble with the film, the, the whole subplot with there's a French, um, uh, like, kind of, Nonprofit group that's that's scoping out landmines and they get tied into the in, into the bloods and, and and what's going on. It, it feels a little kind of tacked on. Um, it's still really good, but it made me think about as we were kind of talking about. We didn't really talk about the in, the individual performances. I mean, I mean, Delroy Lindo super stands out, um, but the other bloods. There's there's um, Clark Peters, who's Otis, who's who's probably to me the secondary lead in the film. Oh yeah. Um, when you talk about the humanizing of, you know, it, it just goes beyond the black Vietnam experience. So kind of spoilers, um, th- how this kind of all gets set up is he meets an old flame, uh, from when he was there, he used to hook up with a prostitute, um, and she helps him get the guides and everything that he needs to be able to sell the, uh, to find the gold and, and then find a uh, launderer to sell the gold. Once they find it, um, and it, you you find out in the film that he left and she had a child um, that is his daughter, um, and there's a beautiful moment kind of later on in the film where they talk about you know you think as a black serviceman you had it bad try having a half black daughter in Vietnam and how ostracized they were and how they had lost everything and she kind of lays into him she's like you have no idea what my experience is like when you left. Um, with with this with this girl that everyone just kind of demonized because she was half black, and I I I do love again it's a little bit rote and it's a little bit narratively tight, but how that storyline ends um, in the film is just it's it's just beautiful and it's extra beautiful because how that resolves at the end is when Spike Lee uses his his patented kind of moving dolly shot with them and it's it's just a gorgeous ending to that but again it's just one of those little moments that speaks to a larger world beyond what Spike Lee you know may be hammering in on he's definitely cognizant that even though he's focusing on here, there are other aspects out there and he's going to show you little glimmers here and there. And it just, it makes the movie that much richer because of it. Let's see who else we need to talk about. Oh, we need to talk about Isaiah Whitlock Jr. This was a, a revelatory moment for me where I did not know prior to this few weeks of movie watching that his, his catchphrase of shit actually doesn't come from the wire. It actually comes from working on a bunch of Spike Lee movies. And every time they work together, they find a, they come up with some way to fit it into the movie. So <laughs> the first time I saw it here, I, I thought, Oh, they're referencing his character in the wire. But then when I looked back, it's like, no, he's been in a bunch of Spike Lee movies he's been and he a does ton it, of Spike Lee films, and he does yeah. it every single time. So I was like, oh, wow, the, the Wire stole a Spike Lee's bit. <laughs> the cast all around are freaking fantastic. But Isaiah Whitlock is, I, there's, you know, if, if, if you're going to throw these guys into their different stereotypes, I, I mean, he's the heart of the film. He's the he's the cuddly, kind of just happy-go-looking guy who, who has his own deep-seated, you know, uh, trauma from the war as well. But he, he, I, I, every time I see him in a film, I'm very happy. <laughs> well, and I mean, th- 
the way he goes out too is just it is yeah. just straight up heroism. He he yep. falls on a grenade like that's that's uh, in a movie that is so many like is so uh, complicated in its outlook. Uh, the way that he goes out is just straight up self sacrificing. That's there's there's nothing complicated about that. There's so many things that we could branch out into from uh from a uh yeah. messaging perspective from an acting and production perspective like all the film like we did we didn't even talk about the treasure this of the sierra madre which is good because i've never seen it but like i yeah, know that I that's mean, the movie it's pulling from right it definitely pulls aspects from that film i mean they even do a nod to it with the we don't need stinking badges which is a very famous line from the film we didn't talk about how perfect casting chadwick boseman is as storm and norman um it, you know, coming off of Black Panther and and how he kind of plays that role in Black Panther to kind of play a very, not a similar character, but to play the person who draws these people together and, and unites them and gives them a common cause. Um, we didn't talk about, um, I'm going to screw up his name, as I do on every episode, but Johnny Tree again as Vin, who is the Vietnamese guy, who is their guide. He's fantastic in the film and there's a lot of complexity that he brings as you learn a little bit of his history growing up in the Vietnam War. I mean, there, there's so much stuff to talk about. Just uh, the music is fantastic. Uh, just the just the sense of just there's that's what's great about Spike Lee. I mean, there's not a film that's that has so he has not made a film where there's so little on the bone that you can't sit and have like seven different conversations that could take an hour. And you, and you talking about Chadwick Boseman just reminded me that his, that I think one of the biggest surprises of the movie for me was that the, the, the arc of Chadwick Boseman's character was that, uh, the, I think probably the closest that this film comes to actually paralleling, uh, apocalypse now is that they all talk about him in like hushed reverent tones like I think one person even it might be Paul talk about how he's his religion or something like there's yeah. there is almost something that feels cult like or dare I say Kurtz like about the way <laughs> that they talk about uh, Storm and Norman um, and so you th- there was part of me that was half expecting the the movie to be like actually storm and norman is alive and has been running his own cult for 50 years or something <laughs> like uh it's it, but 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 the twist is that not that he's gone crazy but he is in fact like almost angelic in his heroism like they they find his body so he's definitely dead pretty like like halfway through the movie so that's not in question but then later when he shows up in uh in the vision to paul to sort of release him from his from his pain and sorrow that he's held on to all these years um he almost takes on an angelic quality in that sense i would i would never have seen that coming and it was so delightful to to get to see that Okay, so the next film we're going to talk about, I, I wanted to take it kind of all the way back to the beginning so that we can kind of talk a little bit about where Spike Lee is now as a filmmaker and kind of where he began. Uh, but we're not going to talk about She's Gonna Have It. We're going to talk about his second film, which was kind of his big break into a larger scale filmmaking. We're going to talk about 1988's School Days. So School Days, um, his second film um, after She's Gotta Have It, and this is where I talked about when we were talking about the 
Five Bloods, it, it, this is very much a case of someone who, with super huge ambitions, a super huge reach, um, even though he doesn't quite grab it all. Um, I just love how messy and how full of life School Days is. So what is School Days about? It's it's a your typical kind of school college comedy. Um, it's not that at all, actually. But it's 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 very much about a um, black college in the 80s. It is about the black college experience, going to a, a, a black college, with different characters espousing different views. Um, basically, kind of really talking about through their actions and through the course of the film what it means to each of them to be black. Uh, so we talked about how, you know, one of Spike Lee's overriding themes is that the black experience is not a monolith. And I think School Days is the epitome of that. Um, in only his second film, th that's really what this movie is about. So from a very thin plot perspective, this is about a school um, that is undergoing a crisis um, because they have not yet divested from South Africa, where all these other Ivy League schools are. And other schools are. This mission college, this kind of fictional college here, um, has not decided to do that yet. So you have various factions. You have the um, the large political conscious faction, uh, kind of led by uh, Dap Von Dunlap, uh, played by a very young and holy crap charismatic uh, Lawrence Fishburne. Mm -hmm. um, you know, being that uh, Black Pride rallying cry. But then on the other side, you have um, Julian Eves, played by Giancarlo Esposito as the head of the Gamma Phi Gamma fraternity um, and his experience um, with what it means to be black in this age. And he also has uh, uh, the fraternity. I'm, I'm not a particularly uh, fraternity person, so I don't know what you, you call it, but they have a women's auxiliary. I, I guess they're not a sorority, but they have like a an auxiliary group uh, called the Gamma Rays. And the Gamma Rays are very light-skinned black women. Um, they're 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 called the the wannabes by the other people in the college. The name that they have for the darker skinned people in the college is not a word we're going to talk about on this. But but this movie really digs into kind of light skin versus black skin. What is is, is your experience more valid than my experience? Um, and all of this bashed together by Spike Lee again, completely in love with and wanting to try his hand at every kind of genre manageable. This is a movie that goes from a Busby Berkeley musical, full-on musical choreographed dance number, um, to um, fourth wall breaking, to um, a much more heated and sweaty, visceral musical moment that speaks to a very different experience in college. Uh, this movie talks about uh, the role of women and and being submissive. This this movie deals with um, potential rape. It, it deals with so many different things. It deals with too many things. And I'll say that right off the bat. But it 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 is so ambitious that even when he doesn't kind of bring every thread together, it is so instantly watchable to me. It is so arresting in what it's trying to do, particularly in 1988, particularly in light of 
the almost kind of um, quasi Woody Allen reality that she's got to have it had to then go to something like this, which is so bold and in your face with an ending that reaches as far back uh, to French New Wave and uh, and uh, with, with its freeze frame and 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 with its fourth wall breaking and it's 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 coming together from uh, like. There is a huge parallel here to um, West Side Story. You know, the Jess and the Sharks and, and coming together at the end over this this moment of anger. It, there's there's so many there's so many callbacks. There's so many there there's so many influences. It's too much. I understand it's too much. I understand that this is a movie that is not entirely successful in its aims, but I love this movie for not being in, successful in its aims because its aims are so large and wide. John, <laughs> I don't know if any of that made any sense, but what was your experience going into school days? It um it, it feels like there's definitely some of the, the the nuances of this obviously being set at a historically back college and the and the conversations around uh, colorism around the black skin uh, the darker skin and the lighter skinned uh, folks. That stuff is probably something that neither of us are qualified to talk about. Um, and especially since my understanding of colorism was that uh, people tended to prefer light-skinned black people over darker-skinned, and so when it's the op, when Dap has the opposite perspective and has taken a task for it, I'm like, oh, I'm I'm clearly missing uh, some pieces of information here that I need. Um, but I think that um, I think what this movie similarly does to *The Five Bloods* is that it has it gives. I think the movie is most successfully identifying with Dap. Ultimately, I think he ends up being sort of the protagonist. Um, but, you know, Julian gets his moment where he gets to tell Dap that, uh, you know, yours is not the only black experience. Um, Sam Jackson in the scene. I was going to say. Yeah. Yeah. The, he, I, I mean, for, for, for someone who is ostensibly the hero, right, Dap, he is completely taken to task by a vicious Samuel L. Jackson, who is like just you can see why he is as famous as he is now. He is electrifying in like the three minutes he is in school days. Yeah, he's not, I I was completely surprised to see him, and I was like, oh, he's 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 great. Um, he gets taken a task by uh, uh, yeah, he gets taken a task by his girlfriend. He gets taken um, even in his mission, which is to get the school to divest uh, from. Uh, apartheid South, South Africa, which seems fairly like unambiguously a good thing. Um, and I'll come back to that in a minute. Um, gets complicated and undercut somewhat when you have the scene between the president of the college and the who the representative of whatever fa rich family is uh, funding the school where they basically talk about how the reason why this isn't the reason why the school isn't divesting from South Africa is because yeah. the the only people that are funding that school don't want them to whereas all the other schools that are divesting have have funding that will take care of them so it's easier for other better funded schools to do it but because they only have the people they have to look after them there. That's why they're not doing it. So even though DAP isn't a part of that conversation, it does feel like it's trying to like really undercut or complicate what should be, you know, however many decades removed from apartheid South Africa being a thing, what should be like the most simple, you know, open and close case. Right. Right. 
like in general, I think that the stuff that feel the stuff that you can recognize as being still relevant uh, to modern day, like to the present 2020 um, is interesting that some of the, some parts of it still feel like incredibly like relevant and you can go, Oh, I can draw the threads to what's going on now uh, is interestingly contrasted against the ways in which I think this movie actually does feel fairly dated the ways that this movie wants to be a college you know sex comedy in in some aspects of it like there's there's you know i think of movies like animal house revenge nerds and and there's part you grow up with those movies and you laugh at them and you look back and go hmm some of this stuff is actually kind of gross and i don't feel great about it and then you watch this movie which ends with uh julian basically offering his girlfriend Julian who wants to dump his girlfriend offering her to half pint to make sure that uh, like as sort of the last step before he gets brought into the frat Um, that is and the movie acknowledges it as I think the movie does acknowledge it as being like bad and gross Um, yeah well he 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 clearly says he's gonna give her up and so that you know any of the rest of the frat brothers can have her and his mechanism for giving her up is to force her to do this horrible thing with with half pint and then use that as the impetus to break up with her it's 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 truly disgusting and and just horrific but it actually since you bring up half pint one of the other things that i we can talk all day again about how you know, this this movie is stacked with cast. But one of the things that doesn't get talked about enough is how good Spike Lee is as an actor. Um, he's really good as Half Pint in, in this. I mean, the next movie that he does, he's, he's Mookie and it's Do the Right Thing. And that's just a whole other level of filmmaking and just kind of masterwork. But he's really good and on point here as, you know, this he's 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 uh, Dap's cousin. And he's a he's a good kid, but you know falls into this thinking, and you see what it does to him, and and how it 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 it, it, it kind of plays out in the end, and that would not be an easy role to kind of do, and Spike Lee does a great job with it. Oh yeah, no, I I and and especially since a large our main thing for Spike Lee has been his ambiguity, the fact that he is literally positioned between Julian and Dap throughout the whole movie is sort of like, yeah, it's just sort of like it's, it's putting it right there on the page for you to see. Like it's on the nose, but I just love how on the nose he is. It, it just, that, that to me is, and I know people will argue this, that to me is part of what I love so much about Spike Lee. In that move where Julian basically forces uh, Jane to have sex with half pint is very reminiscent of she's got to have it uh, yeah. in, in the sense of the kind of violence that's being used to disrupt the movie where this movie, I think wants to try and take on larger, like it, it, it it's, it's sort of a, a nascent attempt for him to like really show a lot of perspectives that in this movie specifically, I think that sort of sends the movie sort of off on a like off its rails so to speak because then i'm no longer thinking that like you know julian made a good point about you know dap not representing all of black experience like you, at that point you're just like no fuck that guy it disrupts the equilibrium that he does better in other movies like obviously like do the right thing like where that it's still messy but it's almost perfect in its messiness where nothing feels like like even the cops and do the right thing. There's a cop that's saying, don't choke out, uh, radio Rahim. Yeah. 
the, there's a cop that's saying don't do it right so there's not even yeah. a monolithic cop perspective again bill nunn let, let's just just real quick bill nunn is also in this movie and he is he's wonderful in the movie as well I just so many great performances here yeah and i and i think uh i do kind of wish in this movie where he's trying to stretch out his muscles a bit, his like ambitions that like, I kind of wish that there was a bit more time spent with, uh, with the, the women's auxiliaries and just sort of giving them a bit more like agency or whatever in like, and I think that that's not necessarily a Spike Lee thing. I think that's a, like a college movie kind of thing. Like it's a, a college movie made in the eighties kind of thing. Um, which is to my larger point of like, this is where something I think where like, if they were going to do this today, I think they might, organize it a bit differently or like or try and buttress up some of the things that like aren't necessarily about the race aspect of it but more about like the dynamics between uh you know the guys and the girls um one movie we haven't talked about yet is uh is uh Chirac a movie that I had a lot of fun watching and is there's a very clear thing he's trying to do in that movie. Um, And so I don't hold it against him because he's trying to just update an old Greek play, but that movie very much relies on dynamics that I think people might look at as outdated. And that's only, and that movie's only made like, you know, a few years ago. So yeah. Yeah. So this movie would benefit much more than she's got to have it right. Uh, This would work great as a new series. So like they took she, she's got to have it and they turned that into a actual Netflix series. I would love to see School Days, to your point, broadened out more, uh, given more time. I, I think it's impossible in the I think the running time here is maybe like just two hours. Yeah, it's 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 yeah, two it's hours and one yeah. minute. I think it's really hard to cram all of that in. So I, I definitely. I don't hold that against him. I would have loved to have seen a lot more with the auxiliaries and just the the black experience from a female perspective. I I I think again, this is a guy who I don't even think he was thirty when he made this film. It's only his second film, and he's you know he's he's trying to work in all these themes. There's only so much you can do. The one thing that I would say, just I was thinking about it when you mentioned it, just with Julian, right? So at the end, we were talking about all these different you know what is the black experience and Julian kind of ends, he doesn't quite end the movie, but the, the, one of the last major actions he takes is this horrible thing with, um, with Jane, um, and, and, and half pint. But the thing that I, I, I would note, and again, a lot of people I've, I've read online kind of think of the ending of the film as a cop out, but it, 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 like that's the act that then breaks everything to the end, right? So it, it's literally the way the movie ends. Spoiler is um, that whole scene happens. Um, she has sex with with with, with half pint. Um, half pint goes and confronts Dap and says, "Hey, you know, I lost my virginity, and this is what happened." They get into a huge fight, um, and then they leave. And then Dap wakes up the next morning, and he's just. Like he's incensed and the whole rest of the movie is him running around the campus screaming, wake up. And it's when they use that dolly shot as well, that that patented Spike Lee dolly shot all the way in his second film is already there. Um, and he's just screaming, wake up. He's ringing the bell. Everyone is coming out. It's like the last curtain call for the cast and the cast all comes around him. And that's where you see Julian kind of the way that I took it is crying with this is the this is what I've become. We all have to wake up and understand 
the you know it, it is just us in this island of racism and hypocrisy and things going on you know the, the last thing that we should be doing are these things that are hurting one another and and that call of wake up and you know they look in each other's eyes and Julian is 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 crying and they have that bonding moment it's a cop out and it's a sure and it's a it, it's a it's a almost too easy way to kind of tie up a sloppy movie but sometimes those sloppy emotional moments are what make the movie work and i think that ending is so uh, is is so powerful in how it just tries to you know it doesn't try to make an easy answer it just asks you to wake up it doesn't uh, you, you know make anything it doesn't resolve anything it, it it is the resolution is in the fact that they are waking up and now whatever happens next is what has to happen next at least that's how i kind of took it and uh i i will forever kind of uh love the movie despite its glossing over certain aspects because of what it tries to do there at the end well and i'm also thinking of like i'm also thinking of the 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 plot twist in red hook summer which the plot twist <laughs> like like because again it, it does a feel much like less the, successful film we should yeah. add because we yeah oh no for sure for sure in our in our watching but it, but it also feels like like I, I think the way that she's got to have it handles that while, I mean, if someone wanted to point out to me why it's problematic, I probably would be willing to listen. But like the reason why it doesn't strike me as being off base and she's got to have it, which is his first film is because the guy that does it is supposed to be the normal one. The one who wants to settle down and all that shit turns out to have been the biggest piece of shit. Like that's that part uh, doesn't ring as false to me. So it's not like it can't be used in that way, but like in red hook summer, I think that for as not successful a movie as it is, once the, uh, once the thing happens in that movie, uh, it, try like it has its moment where everything is chaotic in a typical wonderful Spike Lee fashion but then it tries to like come back from that and it can't you know so sometimes it definitely works for him I think that in this particular one it I mean at least he's calling it out for what it is as opposed to a movie like Revenge of the Nerds where they fail to recognize what they're doing <laughs> um it feels like the, the ending gets a bit fumbled but like for but for otherwise a pretty strong pretty strong runtime now we'll have to make the duel for real and we'll have to take our 10 paces. Yeah. No, I mean, I could definitely see it. Uh, I, I just, uh, even, even though I don't agree, it's, it's, it's one of those things where I, I get it. It is a not as clean and successful as he has done it in other movies. But I can't, and again, this is this is where the the real personal comes into it for me. Um, I, I I can't find fault with it. I just I, I I see it, and it just it again. It's just one of those things. Maybe because some parts of it resonate stronger with me personally that I just I can't find fault, and I I just I I, I love the ending to pieces on it. That's fair, and like I <laughs> still like I still like most of the rest of the movie too. Like I'd say it's it's fairly, um, but I guess I should also admit that like. I've never been particularly hot on fraternities anyway. So it's not like, it's not like this movie was going to win me over. 
to 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 that anyway so uh maybe i'm just biased that way he's made better films he's made bigger films but i still think if you've never seen it it's interesting to see because a lot of his at least if you're looking at this from a purely filmmaking perspective a lot of the touchstones that he um goes to um in all of his later films you can find them all in here just his 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 second film so if for nothing else you you just want to kind of see a young exuberant spike lee kind of test his metal with a bunch of different ideas check out school days for being like for coming from she's got to have it which is uh very like i i like she's got to have it but it, i do this, but but going from that to this the the scope the ambition is just crazy uh and i respect the hell out of it for trying to go much bigger and much uh broader i think you could almost stage she's all that as a like a play like it's it's a very small cast uh and going to like you know big giant football scenes which admit <laughs> i remember watching the football thing and seeing almost no football players like they have everyone in the stands but they never actually show the game i was like there's your bu- <laughs> there's there's your efficient budget right there <laughs> exactly i love that i i love that stuff All right, I think that's going to do it for our two movies this evening. We always like to do some film recommendations. Uh, Chris, do you have anything to get us going tonight? Yeah, I'll talk about just one quick one, um, just because it's it's on my mind since I just saw it, um, and it ties in nicely with some of the themes we're talking about, and that is the brand new Netflix film, The Old Guard. So we talked about The Five Bloods. Now let's talk about The Old Guard. Uh, this is a very different movie because it is um, based on a comic book written by Greg Rucka, and it is uh, it stars Charlize Theron. Uh, it is directed by Gina Prince-Bythewood, um, who, if you have not seen any of her films, Oh man, Love and Basketball is a incredible film. Check that that one out. She she's uh, the Secret Life of Bees, um, and I have not seen Beyond the Lights, but I have heard amazing things about Beyond the Lights. Uh, it's it's one that I got to catch up on. Uh, but she she's a fantastic director. This is stars Charlize Theron, um, um, AJ Dix. Um, a bunch of other people, written by Greg, Greg Rucka. He also did the the screenplay. It is about a group of immortals um, over time who are now in the present day, and they are kind of like a like a top secret mercenary group. Um, they kind of do these missions if the pay is right, and it's about what happens when people find out their secret that they're immortal and uh, try to take them to use them for their own diabolical ends. Uh, of course, your entryway into the film, there is a young woman, she is a soldier, uh, fighting in Afghanistan. She suddenly becomes immortal, so she is our entryway into this film. Um, are are you going to see anything you haven't seen before? No, probably not. Um, it's a Netflix film. The action is really, really good. Um, it is a very visceral, hard R. Um, but the thing that I really loved about it is, again, so we're, we're coming from a black director. Uh, we have a female lead. This movie has... it. It really plays with relationships really well. Um, John, I was telling you earlier, one of the, the best things about the film is there is a... Um, Two of the immortals, um, this is not really a spoiler, but they discovered each other. They were fighting in the Crusades, and one was a Moor, and one was um, part of the, the, the French Christians. Uh, they kept killing each other over and over again, only to realize that they couldn't die in the Crusades. And as they kept doing that, they fell in love. 
and uh, they are uh, they are they have been a couple for hundreds and hundreds of years. And the way that the film plays that relationship is just beautiful and incredible. It has some incredible kind of scenes and moments where I was like, wow, what, what a great speech. I, I wonder if that was similar in the comic book. Uh, read the comic book uh, yesterday, and uh, that's why you have the guy who wrote the book write the screenplay, because it is word for word from the comic book. Um, it's nothing crazy, but again, as we start to talk about different filmmakers and um, um, filmmakers of color, uh, th this is something that um, kind of fits that bill, but it's also just really, really entertaining if you're just looking to just sit down and watch a bunch of people get shot a thousand times and then just get right back up and heal and then kill a bunch of people with axes and swords. I mean, sometimes that's what you want out of your entertainment. This fits the bill. Um, the fact that it goes a little bit deeper into relationships and questions about, you know, um, our, our, our actions and our responsibilities and the imprints we leave on, on, on the world, all of those are pluses for the film. I, th I think I've been sold enough at this point on it to definitely check it out. So that's good. Um, I have a couple of uh, recommendations as well. Going first uh, is a movie called The Watermelon Woman, which is a movie came out in 1996, uh, written, directed by Cheryl Dunye or Dunye. I don't know how to pronounce her name. Sorry. Dunye is a filmmaker who like she lists Spike Lee as an influence. So it feels like a nice, a, a nice sort of turning off point from uh, Spike Lee. Um, and the, the watermelon woman is about a, a young black uh, lesbian played by the director who is trying to track down an actress that she sees miscredited in uh, old uh, Hollywood movies playing uh the mammy stereotype roles and she's basically like trying to dig through historical archives to tr find try and find out who this mysterious watermelon woman was and it's something of a like there's like there's some historical stuff they do like they do sort of like interviews with like it's kind of sort of set up like half narrative fiction half documentary interview stuff there's also like romantic comedy aspects to it as well wikipedia lists it as the first feature film directed by a black lesbian which it's a fun and interesting movie to watch in addition to sort of whatever historical significance it has to it but uh i enjoyed it and i think that there's i think you can see the spike lee influence on it um in in certain respects at least but yeah that would be that's my first one and the second one has absolutely nothing to do with spike lee it is a 1993 documentary film from alanis abomsawin called kanesetake 270 years of resistance it chronicles the 1990 oka crisis which just had its 30th anniversary um Ms. Alanis actually got a f grant from the National Film Board to uh, embed herself in the midst of this crisis, uh, which, largely speaking, uh, saw a 70-day uh, standoff between the Mohawk people and the Canadian military. And my understanding, not having known anything about this prior, is that this film uh, shed light onto the the story of what was going on that was very different than what the news media had been reporting up until that point which was a decidedly pro-government anti-indigenous uh, perspective and this movie really sort of put into sharp relief what was actually going on um it brings to mind the, some of the while the specifics are obviously different the way in which the filmmaker inserts themselves and sort of shows um the sides of the conflict really feels 
uh, really brings to mind something like Harlan County, uh, USA, uh, which we talked about a few episodes back. And I mean, this is, I don't know, this feels important to me that people, especially Canadians, uh, uh, watch this. Unfortunately, it is up on the National Film Board's uh, YouTube channel to watch for free. Cool. Yep. That's it for me, and I think that'll do it for us this evening, because we all have bedtimes and uh, kids to chase in the morning. So, uh, Chris, it's good to reconnect with you, as always, and uh, I hope that uh, things continue to be well or get better, whatever, wherever you're starting from, I hope it goes better. I hope it goes up from here. Same to you and same to everyone else listening. Uh, Looking forward to doing this again next time. So we'll see you soon.